Hello, and welcome to the History of Philosophy in India by Janardan Ganeri and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at www.historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Communication Breakdown, Bhatsi Hari on Language. Have you ever noticed how intellectuals tend to think that their own chosen discipline happens to be the most important of all? Historians are quick to remind us that those who forget the past are doomed to repeat it, mathematicians that their proofs attain to the highest degree of certainty, and of course philosophers boast of pursuing the queen of the sciences, with the other disciplines being mere subjects. So, it's par for the course when Batri Hari, one of the greatest figures in classical Sanskrit grammar, tells us that the study of language constitutes the door to liberation. Batri Hari is, however, modest enough to give others the credit for opening up that door. He belongs to the tradition inaugurated by the work of the great Panini, whom we discussed back in episode 8 but he is responding directly to the later Patanjali, whose great commentary, or Mahabhashya, on Panini, is the inspiration for Bhatrihari's own treatises. Bhatrihari is thus heir to a long tradition. Panini worked in the 6th or 5th centuries BC, his commentator Patanjali in the 2nd century AD, with both drawing on further, more shadowy authors. Bhatrihari then comes along in the 5th century AD, a full millennium after Panini. He was apparently the first to write a super-commentary, called Tika, or Deepika, on the commentary of Patanjali, but his fame rests especially on another work based on Patanjali's commentary, the Treatise on Words and Sentences, or Vakya Padiya. Its style is by now familiar to us, a sequence of terse, aphoristic remarks which often presuppose knowledge of the texts to which Bhartrihari is alluding. Of course, Indian intellectuals didn't hesitate to provide such exegetical works with their own further commentaries, and the Vakya Padiya is no exception. An accompanying explanatory work, called a Vritti, may even have been written by Bhartrihari himself. Whether or not this is so, the Vritti is a helpful guide to the argument of the much more compressed Vakya Padiya. More than Panani or Patanjali, Bhatrihari really shows us the philosophical importance of the Sanskrit grammatical tradition. Indeed, his boast that grammar is the door to liberation suggests that for him, the study of language just is philosophy. Where other Indian thinkers saw meditation or ethical discipline as the route to liberation, Patrihari takes a far more intellectualist stance. It is knowledge that sets us free. Not knowledge of grammatical details like case endings or the difference between singular and plural, though we can read about these things at length in the Vakya Padiya. The analysis of language is rather a step along the path to a higher form of understanding in which we grasp the reality that underlies and gives rise to language. This reality is Brahman. It's for this reason that we are covering Bhatrihari here alongside the Vedanta tradition. Like the Vedantins, he is convinced that Brahman is the single fundamental principle of all things which is known to us only because of the Veda. Bhatrihari offers a distinctively linguistic version of this idea. 
Grammar is, of course, worth studying simply in order to interpret the Sanskrit texts of the Veda itself. More fundamentally, though, it is language that accounts for the division or differentiation of the single Brahman into the multiple reality we experience. To understand why, we must ask what exactly Bhatrihari understands language to be. It's not an easy question to answer, although he says a lot about it. On this and other topics, the Vakya Padiya includes summaries and refutations of various other views, with Bhatrihari's own position occasionally remaining unclear. He also uses technical terms whose significance is not immediately obvious. In this case, the most important such terms are Svota and Shabda. Roughly, Svota is the inner meaning of language, while the language used to represent this meaning is Shabda. That sounds pretty straightforward, except that shabda, or linguistic representation, can occur either in the mind or in actual verbal speech. Patsrihari says that language in the mind gives rise to expressed language like one fire kindling another. When you hear an utterance, you also depend on your mental representations in order to understand what you are hearing. You thereby get access to the inner meaning, or sfota, that the speaker was trying to express. Patrihari's view thus far sounds pretty commonsensical. Suppose I want to warn you that there's a giraffe in your kitchen. I may formulate a sentence to this effect in my mind, then utter it aloud. This will trigger comprehension in your mind, along with the hope that the giraffe will clean up last night's dishes. The verbal utterance and the two mental acts all point towards a single shared meaning, that there is a giraffe in the kitchen. It's right about here, though, that things get more controversial. The meaning, or svota, is in a sense the core of language, since capturing meaning is the whole point of the linguistic enterprise. Yet, we can also say that svota is non-linguistic. According to Batrihari, meaning in itself has no parts, and is not subject to time. Only actual verbal utterances are affected by time, since we need to speak one word after another, whereas a meaning can be represented in the mind all at once. Bhatrihari's analysis is diametrically opposed to a rival view, which he associates with the Mimamsa school. According to the Mimamsakas known to Bhatrihari, meaning is not prior to linguistic expression. Rather, they say, it is actually constituted by the verbal utterance, whose parts work together to express and give rise to the intended meaning. So, in our example, individual words like giraffe and kitchen are fitted together in a suitable grammatical structure, which results in a meaningful sentence. For Batrihari, this gets things backward. Individual words have no meaning in their own right, but only come to signify in the context of a sentence, just as the sounds that make up a word, like jir and af, are not in themselves meaningful. He asks us to consider the fact that the individual words of a sentence pass away as they are uttered. When I am saying, there is a giraffe in the kitchen, the word giraffe has already come and gone by the time I get to the word kitchen. This means that the words cannot come together to give rise to a united meaning because they do not all exist at the same time. Consider also the fact that in some sentences we use individual words that have no referent. If I utter the less alarming sentence, there is not a giraffe in the kitchen, then the word giraffe is clearly not signifying any actual giraffe. It is therefore meaningful not just by itself, but only as part of a whole sentence.
In fact, Bhattihari concludes, the words and the sentence as a whole make an inner meaning manifest, rather than actually constituting the meaning. Something analogous happens from the listener's point of view. Rather than grasping the meaning of each individual word as one listens, one comprehends the meaning of the whole sentence at once, in a flash of understanding that occurs when the sentence reaches its conclusion. Bhattihari anticipates a possible objection from the proponent of the Mimamsa theory. This opponent may say that part-by-part composition of meaning would account better for logical relations between sentences, such as contradiction. Take our two example sentences again, there is a giraffe in the kitchen, and there is not a giraffe in the kitchen. The second sentence sure looks like the first sentence with one part added, namely the word not, which generates a new and contradictory meaning. To this, Bhattihari simply replies that relations between sentences, including contradiction, have to do with the degree of overall resemblance between the indivisible meanings of the sentences in question. Despite his holistic approach, Bhattihari also has much to say about the grammatical features of individual words, like the case and gender of nouns. Ultimately, though, grammar is the study of the way communication breaks down meaning. The grammarian analyzes the parts of speech that allow us to express meaning, but in so doing, he should realize that the meaning is unified and prior to linguistic expression. The Mimamsa approach to language, by contrast, is like trying to understand a pot by starting from broken shards rather than the whole vessel. Here we may have our own flash of understanding as we note the affinity between Bhattrihari's theory of language and the Vedanta theory of reality. Much as Vedanta encourages us to see the multiplicity of phenomenal experience as an expression of the single source that is Brahman, so Bhattrihari thinks that divisible speech expresses indivisible meaning. Actually, there's more here than just an affinity, because for Bhattrihari, language is not merely analogous to phenomenal experience, it is the means by which we have experience and come to know the world. Even in the most rudimentary perceptions, such as those had by small children, there is what he calls a latent seed of language, which cannot be communicated. Full-blown cognition, though, is always linguistic, so that our knowledge is permeated by words. Again, this may seem to be more or less common sense. It's quite plausible to say that we can only grasp things around us by filing them under certain descriptions or concepts, so that we are able to put our experiences into words. When I perceive that alarmingly tall animal in the kitchen as a giraffe, my ability to do so arguably depends on my having the word giraffe in my vocabulary. Let's look more closely at these concepts by which we classify the things that we perceive. Philosophers nowadays would call them universals, and Bhattrihari does the same. The Sanskrit term he uses is jiva. He is very interested in universals, in part because they are so critical in the study of grammar. Some grammarians thought that language refers in the first instance to individual things, like the particular giraffe in your kitchen. For Bhattrihari, though, meanings are primarily universal. The universal is, indeed, what we really mean by svota. This is shown by the way that words work, especially in languages like Sanskrit, where you can start with a basic noun and then add endings to indicate gender and number to apply that noun to a particular object or objects. For an example in English, consider the four words actor, actors, 
actress and actresses. The universal meaning is what licenses us to apply the same word to these many objects. In all those cases, we are talking about someone who acts on stage. Patsihari again uses here the notion of resemblance. We apply the word giraffe to every giraffe because they all resemble one another in the relevant way, while differing in other respects. This giraffe is in the kitchen doing dishes, that one in the study reading about philosophy. Even the same individual bears a relation of resemblance to itself at other times. This, according to Batrihari, is why we are allowed to say, you are like yourself, the sort of remark you might make to someone at a school reunion after not seeing them for 30 years. Most Indian thinkers believed that language reveals the structure of reality, and as an expert in language, Batrihari was hardly going to disagree. So, for him, the primacy of the universal at the level of meaning shows that reality itself is in the first instance universal, and only then particular. Individual things reveal the universal just as individual words reveal the meaning of a whole sentence. We might be reluctant to move so quickly from the level of language or its meaning to the level of reality. What guarantee do we have that language captures the way things are? But Bhattarihari has good reason to assume that it does because he adheres to a belief we first encountered in Mimamsa, the Veda, and hence language itself, are unoriginated. Bhattarihari takes this to imply that there is a primordial classification of reality in terms of universals, which are the meanings eternally revealed in the language of scripture. That makes him sound a bit like Plato. Universals, like platonic forms, would give significance to our words and also be the fundamental principles of all things. But remember that for Bhattarihari, the truly fundamental principle of all things is Brahman. How then do his universals relate to this single source? Scholars don't agree on this point. One suggestion has been that Brahman is effectively the most general universal, identical with being, or to put it another way, with the class of all things that exist. Other universals add further differentiation, progressively narrowing down this most general universal. Nothing apart from Brahman is just a being. Rather, some beings are alive, some living things are animals, some animals are giraffes, and some giraffes, though not many, are in kitchens. On this reading, Bhattarihari would sound less like Plato and more like a Neoplatonist making use of Aristotelian logic. To be specific, he would sound like Porphyry, whose famous Porphyrian tree consisted in just such a hierarchy of genera containing lower species. But this reading of Bhattarihari has been challenged fairly persuasively. What we really find in the Vakya Padiya is the idea that universals are all identical with Brahman and constitute various means of expressing its fundamental reality. In favor of this interpretation is the nice parallel that would result between the relation of the universals to Brahman on the one hand and the relation of individuals to the universal on the other hand. Just as the universals divide Brahman while being identical with it, so individual giraffes both divide and yet are somehow identical with the universal giraffe. Whichever interpretation we adopt, it's clear that for Bhattarihari, universals form a second layer of principles which manifest and differentiate the most fundamental reality that is Brahman. In a further step, the universals are themselves made manifest, on the metaphysical side by individuals, 
on the linguistic side by mental representation and speech. Less clear is whether all this amounts to the sort of radical proposal we found last time in Shankara's Advaita version of Vedanta. Is Bhatrihari saying that the language and universal meaning to which he has devoted himself so assiduously is actually, in the end, a kind of falsification or misrepresentation of the single reality of Brahman? Is our world of experience, structured as it is by language, just an illusion? If so, then grammar would seem to be less a door to liberation and more a ladder to be thrown away once liberation is achieved through the grasp of Brahman. Much as with the Brahma Sutra, one can find passages in the Vakya Padiya to support both dualism and non-dualism. In favor of dualism, in other words, the idea that the world of experience is indeed real, though a secondary, lesser reality than Brahman, we have the fact that Brahman is said to possess powers for the production of other things, and to take on forms when these things are produced. One of Bhatrihari's most celebrated images would fit well here. He says that Brahman is like a peacock's egg, which reveals a welter of brilliant colors once it hatches and produces the bird and its plumage. In favor of non-dualism, though, we have passages that connect language with unreality. In at least some cases, words can express non-existent things, something Bhatrihari compares to the circle we see when looking at a whirling firebrand. Elsewhere, he remarks that the study of language is a path to truth, even though it deals with what is unreal. Comments on the beginning of the Vakya Padiya, found in the explanatory Vritti, also tend in a non-dualist direction. This side of Bhatrihari brings him close not only to the later Shankara, but also to contemporary Buddhists who were more forthright in condemning the world of experience as an illusion. In fact, one thinker who reacted to Bhatrihari was the great Buddhist thinker Dignaga, and he was quick to point out the skeptical implications lurking in Bhatrihari's theory. Language may distort reality by dividing it, pulling it apart into an infinity of fragments. We'll have much more to say about Dignaga, but that will come much later. For now, we have more Vedic schools to consider. We'll soon be moving on from Mimamsa Vedanta to the Samkhya and Yoga schools. But before we close the door on Vedanta, we want to have one more go at liberating you from any confusion concerning this famous Indian tradition. And who better for that purpose than a famous Indologist, namely Francis Clooney. He'll be our guest next time here on the History of Philosophy in India. Ala.